This is a diet of Brussels. What's the impact of this snap general election? Gosh, I, I feel weary even just thinking of the title of this podcast. Uh, this is something that's always been hanging over uh, the uh, process ever since the, the 24th of June last year when David Cameron resigned from his uh, position as Prime Minister and there was the process to, to replace him. And there was always the question that whoever was going to win that was that they were going to lack a, a popular mandate uh, secured through a general election. So there's been a constant rumbling of uh, interest in having uh, a snap general election uh, here in the UK just so that uh, Theresa May can have that uh, particular string of legitimacy to what it's done. But uh, it's hard to see uh, that really is a, a big motor for what's uh, gone on here. Certainly talk of a, a quick general election had faded in recent months as uh, the Brexit process carried on and uh, Theresa May seemed to be happy with the, the state of affairs. So there's a question here about why do it and why do it now? And I want to deal with that before I think a bit about the, the Brexit question, because uh, I think that these two things are related. For May, I think the logic of doing it now in a Brexit sense is that she has now started the process, that she's done her formal notification. And so the, the, the process is very much more in motion. It's much harder to stop or to reverse or to change direction. Uh, and so even if in the worst case she were to lose this general uh, election, she would uh, still find that her plans were in effect carried out by whoever replaced her. But uh, at the same time, she uh, could quite easily have uh, uh, pursued the same logic and gone for an early rapid notification after her election uh, and then gone straight into a general election at that point. So I'm not sure that that particularly makes much sense here. What makes more sense is uh, a view of this election as one that is driven by narrow uh, party political advantage, that the Labour Party is absolutely tanking in uh, opinion polls, that the competence of Jeremy Corbyn as any kind of leader is uh, held deeply uh, in question uh, by all voters, including Labour voters. And uh, this looks like as good a time as any, that if you're 20 points ahead in the polls, why not do it? That even in the age of uncertainty that we live in uh, politically, you're pretty likely to win this vote and to handily increase your margin and potentially scatter uh, the Labour Party as you go uh, along. So I think there's a need here to recognise that important and central and fundamental and consequential though the Brexit process is, it is not the only game in town. That this is an opportunity for the British polity to just continue its uh, general uh, development and you know the Brexit stuff is actually not the key point that if she had been in the same position without Brexit Theresa May well might well have done the same thing but this really is a prelude to the big question is what is the impact of all of this on Brexit and here I think we we might note uh, some different 
issues. First one is a, a procedural issue. Um, at the moment, we're in a little bit of a hiatus in the negotiations that we're waiting for the 29th of April for the European Council summits to agree the negotiating mandate for the 27th. Now, all the indications are that that will very closely follow the document published by Donald Tusk uh, the week after the UK's notification, and which I will talk about at the end of this month once we have that approved, which basically is... Uh, a relatively uh, well accommodating uh, position uh, in principled terms, but one which clearly moves the UK out towards uh, a position not so dissimilar from where the UK has said it wants to be, namely some kind of free trade plus uh, agreement. And it's interesting that the EFTA option has come back on the table, and uh, we'll talk about that at some point too. So procedurally, there's not a whole lot going on. That The 27 are just trying to sort themselves out ahead of this summit. Again, we're waiting a bit on the French elections, uh, which will be finishing at the beginning of May. But logically, uh, assuming that everything went uh, smoothly on that front, then negotiations might well have started relatively quickly after that. So... Uh, until the UK government is reformed on the 9th of June, you would expect that the UK is not going to be pursuing any big issues or parts of the Brexit negotiation. So it means we're going to end up with somewhere in the region of two to two and a half months of the two-year Article 50 period, uh, where we are having to sit on our hands a little bit. Now, if you take the uh, interpretation that until we have the German federal elections in the autumn, uh, nothing was really going to happen anyway, and this is all just uh, sorting out a process and who's going to meet when and talk about what, then actually it doesn't really have any impact. So procedurally, it might not have a huge delaying impact. Substantively, though, I think it raises a number of questions. The first one is what's the UK trying to achieve by this? That from the perspective of the 27, the justification for this, ref uh, this uh, general election looks very thin. Theresa May talked uh, outside number 10 about the opposition in Parliament and from other parties to the Brexit process, uh, which you might have thought wasn't part of the process of democratic politics, but apparently is cause for... Uh, calling uh, the country together to uh, choose who should be in charge. Now, uh, given that uh, Parliament hasn't obviously made any inroads into controlling the government, the opposition uh, lead uh, under Labour has been uh, almost ridiculously uh, incoherent, certainly in the person of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, that looks like no reason whatsoever. So the question is, uh, is there some kind of messing about that's going here on here? That is this going to be a, a way that Theresa May tries to uh, mess with uh, the dynamics of what's going on? Now, uh, clearly, if we assume that Theresa May wins uh, the election with a big majority and that uh, she takes forward the plans that she's presented so far, which, uh, vague though they are, are at least nominally plans that then she might say, well, look, I've now got uh, an additional mandate for this kind of Brexit, and so that is the direction 
we must uh, work towards in the negotiations. Now, I don't actually think the 27 are particularly uh, bothered by that because uh, remember that Article 50 is very much more about what the EU is prepared to give a departing member state rather than what the departing member state might choose to have. So uh, the weight of the 27 is not going to be shifting anytime soon. Uh, it's not going to be shifting as a result of this general election, which presumably just returns the same government, but uh, in uh, even more so kind of way. So substantively, uh, I think it's going to raise some uh, questions about whether it's going to be a means to introduce new issues, new dynamics, uh, and try and... Uh, back that up through a general election. In practical terms, I don't think that that is particularly Theresa May's interest, uh, that she has had plenty of opportunities to try and do something like that beforehand in a much less uh, risky way than uh, calling an election, uh, and she hasn't taken any of those opportunities. However, uh, potentially what uh, this general election does is change the dynamics of the British position uh, with regards to the Brexit process as a whole, which also impinges on the substance. Up until this morning, uh, about 5 to 11, uh, the next general election was going to be held in May 2020. Now, that would have been a year, uh, a bit more uh, than a year after the uh, expected end of Article 50 negotiations but would have been slap bang in the middle of the transitional periods of two to three years that were being talked about uh, in recent weeks. Now, it might be that Theresa May sees an opportunity here to reset the clock on a general election, because now, uh, assuming that she has it uh, on, the 9th, on the 8th of June, uh, because she needs parliamentary approval, uh, that then it, she won't need to have another general election until June of 2022. Now, that means that she might be able to do the two-year period of Article 50 plus a two, if not indeed three-year transitional period, so it would all be done at the point that she next has to go to the polls. Now, the advantage of that is that potentially she is able then to present a final package of Brexit to the voting public. It means that there is more time for any negative economic consequences to play out and be corrected by changes in the economy. And basically, she mean, it means that she can leave really nothing for any replacement government that might come up in the next five years to do anything about, that we'll be at the end of the transition, we will be into something more like the new relationship that is envisaged, uh, and it will be very hard for a new government to change that, to say, I know we've just spent five years talking about this, but can we talk about it for another two or three? Now, that's a gamble, uh, because we still don't know what, if any, transitional periods we might have. We don't know what kind of economic consequences there might be. But uh, from May's perspective, that looks still like a, a reasonable situation uh, from which to work. Now, having said all this, I think that there are two, I think, really interesting consequences of this general election that potentially uh, obtain. The first one you might see as a positive for May, the other one you might see as a negative. The positive is that if 
she is able to get a much enlarged majority, and we might be talking here about 200 uh, MPs, then the weight of any one constituency within the parliamentary party, the parliamentary uh, Tory party, will be that much smaller. Now that matters not only for those pro-EU MPs, a lot of whom I think are likely to find themselves struggling to get uh, reselected anyway, or to get the support of their local constituency. Um, it's also true of the hard Brexiteers, that the softening that we've seen in recent weeks has not been at all driven by the anticipation of a snap election, but rather by the reality of the situation. And I think that that will only continue in the negotiations that we see coming, that the awareness of what might be possible and what might be desirable in uh, the Article 50 process is going through some fairly rapid shifts in uh, Whitehall and in Westminster. But from Theresa May's perspective, we remember that the one guiding light of her Brexit policy has been she doesn't want to be tied down by anybody, that then this is potentially highly advantageous, especially if we remember that because this is a snap election, she's likely to be able to get more of her kind of people into uh, positions of being parliamentary candidates, that the capacity of local associations to rapidly select uh, candidates or to withstand the imposition of candidates by central office is going to be relatively uh, uh, low. So that might mean that central office is able to actually then get more of its people uh, on the ballot and then into the chamber, which will uh, again strengthen May's hand. Add to that then the personal mandate that she has, the strong leadership that she has, uh, and you can see that from uh, May's perspective, this whole thing really helps to reaffirm her position uh, through the term of the next parliament. The downside though is one that's, uh, I think, possibly overlooked. We're seeing a lot of pieces today about uh, how this is going to be the death of the the Labour Party and this is all going to be terrible. But let's just think about it for a minute. If we assume that Jeremy Corbyn resigns in the face of a very poor election result, then actually you're producing the situation that the parliamentary Labour Party has been trying to engineer for the past uh, 18 months, namely remove of Corbyn and the re-emergence of a more centrist and uh, unifying figure uh, that will help rebuild the link between the parliamentary party and the uh, party at large. Now, uh, this matters because uh, Theresa May has had in Jeremy Corbyn the most wonderful uh, opponent as leader of uh, the Labour Party, somebody who's been doing terrible damage to the party internally, who has not provided any real uh, scrutiny of policies uh, on anything, certainly not on Brexit. Um, and now, instead of having three more years of him uh, carrying on his uh, good work, as she might see it, she's now going to be losing him and getting somebody who is almost certainly going to be a more uh, focused and directed leader. Now, uh, the consequence of that is not only that you will have a Labour Party that will be a more effective opposition, even if it is a smaller opposition, 
but also you probably will remove the kind of hazy uh, effects that have been going on since 2015 of uh, splits in the party that probably you will find a candidate who will reconcile the membership and the MPs and bring them back together again to make them into a more cohesive and coherent uh, unit. Now, uh, I say that. I think we should never underestimate the, the power of any party to get engaged in infighting. But uh, that would seem to be the logical path, that by uh, the autumn there'll be a new Labour leader who will be doing much more critical surveying of Theresa May, which is precisely what she has not wanted, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been very useful to her in his uh, fairly benign uh, neglect of the issue. Now, all of this clearly is still to come out in the wash. Uh, snap elections always come with a lot of uncertainty, that playbooks haven't been written, agents haven't been recruited, people don't exist on the ground. I think in terms of resources, we have to assume that the Tory party is far ahead of any other party, that this is uh, going to be the party that will basically wipe the floor with the others uh, organisation because they have a lot more money available to uh, mobilise on this. And clearly they've had uh, some of a head, something of a heads up, although uh, only in a very small uh, circle. Now, uh, we have to see really what the form of the campaign is going to be who's going to come through. I think we need to remember that there's going to be a Scottish dimension to this, that uh, the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon is going to make an awful lot of the Brexit dynamic and how Scotland is not listened to. And this will be a huge benefit to her in her uh, Indy Ref 2 uh, campaign, that she will have a much clearer way of saying, look how uh, London doesn't care about Scotland. Now, again, Given that Theresa May clearly opposes uh, Scottish independence, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that issue plays out. More interesting, though, from the perspective of you, the listener, and me, the uh, commentator, is how much of an issue will Brexit be? You'd expect that the Liberal Democrats will make a lot about Brexit, as the centre of their piece and that they will be hoping for uh, a substantial rebuilding after their uh, taking apart two years ago. But other parties are going to be much more circumspect about it. The SNP will talk about Brexit, but as a function of Scottish independence. Labour might talk about Brexit, but really won't, because Jeremy Corbyn will not want to make that the centrepiece of his policy, because he doesn't have an alternative policy. Um, it's telling that in his response to Jer uh, Theresa May's statement, there was no mention at all about Brexit. Instead, it was about jobs, the NHS, social security, and all the rest. Which leaves the, Labour, uh, the Tory party. I have the impression that the view that Theresa May will take is that they, the Conservative government has set out its stall on Brexit. It has a policy and it will pursue it. Uh, and that's there. It's a matter of record for everyone to see. The only question is competence, that we have made the decision about Brexit. It is a closed decision. There was a referendum. We have moved on. We have the notification. We have the support of Parliament and of the people. That is done. But what matters now is who is competent to lead the country through this transitional period. 
And on that, she undoubtedly outperforms Jeremy Corbyn with every single demographic you can think of, including probably, well, actually, including Labour voters, that uh, competence on Brexit, Theresa May, is streets ahead of anybody else. But that's how she will talk about Brexit, not as a decision that still needs to be made or a form that needs to be taken, but rather as a decision that has already been done and dusted and that it's simply about who is going to help see us through in the plan that we have agreed. Now, those of you who listen regularly to these podcasts uh, or read the uh, blog posts I wrote might be surprised to discover that we've made a plan uh, or a decision because I'm still not entirely sure that I've seen one uh, in anything that the government's produced. But rhetorically, that will be the approach that we know where we're going with Brexit and who do you trust uh, to deliver it? Now, uh, I think that leaves relatively little space for discussions about Brexit. And you would expect that Theresa May, when it comes to any kind of televised debate or the rest, when Nick Clegg uh, or Tim Farron stands up and says, what about this, what about that, is that there will be the patriotic defence by Theresa May. She'll say, you're doing down the UK, you're going against the will of the people. There won't be a substantive discussion of the issues. Now, uh, I might be wrong, there's a lot to play for, but interesting times lie ahead for all of us, and I will continue podcasting about it. And uh, if you have any suggestions or questions that you'd like to answer, uh, then please just drop us a line at the website, which is www.adartofbrussels.com, uh, or find me on Twitter at Usherwood. Have a good day and see you soon.